0: if you would, open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 is where we're going to be tonight uh, and a little bit into chapter 15. And we're going to continue uh, looking at some of what we were discussing this morning. This morning we discussed a passage from uh, Matthew chapter 7, right, in the Sermon on the Mount about uh, judging others and the way that we judge other people. And You learn from that passage that if you want to be, if you want to have a kind and gracious and patient judge, you should be a kind and patient and gracious judge towards others. Uh, You shouldn't act as a judge if you don't want God to act as your uh, judge. It's the way that you treat other people is the way that God is going to treat you. And so, uh, make sure that if you are going to correct another person, if you are going to 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 take that step. Do so in the way that you want to be judged, uh, and uh, don't do so hypocritically. Don't do so uh, from a posture of superiority, but do so with love and with uh, humility and with grace. Well, that's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things that I love about our New Testament is you can see the teachings of Jesus that He gives to uh, the the followers and the disciples that He had during His earthly ministry. But then, after his death and resurrection, and you have the church that started, and you have the church that grows and expands, and it's in, you have know, like in Jewish cities, you have it in Gentile cities, you have it spreading throughout the world. Some of the ways, like the practical situations that arise that, for example, Paul has to deal with, it's fascinating to, to me to see the way that he takes the teachings of Jesus— and applies them in a variety of settings to different people in different ways. That takes, a, that takes culture, or a, that takes a wisdom in, in order to see a culture and to know how to appropriately apply uh, the teachings of Christ as these new situations arise. And, and sometimes it's interesting in his letters to see how he works through those things. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, there's there's this really interesting passage where he's, he's trying to t- apply the teachings of the Lord to various uh, uh, marriage situations there at Corinth, but then he faces some, and it seems like he's addressing a situation that Jesus didn't address. And he, he specifically says, now regarding this, I don't have a word from the Lord, but I'll give you my opinion as someone who, by God's grace, is trustworthy. And I'll tell you what I think we to do here. Uh, but Paul has to take the teachings of Jesus and uh, apply them in all kinds of new settings as the church expands and reaches new areas and new situations arise. And so here in Romans 14, I think that's what we have going on. I think we have a conflict to the church in Rome and Paul is trying to take the teachings and the ideas of Jesus and apply them uh, to this church as these new situations arise. And if you read through Romans 14, you find out that there are uh, some. There's there's both judgment that's taking place, and there is contempt. Some are viewing others with contempt, and some are viewing others and judging them. And and I imagine it kind of goes something like this one person judges another person for something that they do, and the other person responds with a how dare you, and they end up looking with contempt at the person who's judging, and what that does is it ends up severing their relationship, and Paul has been working really hard throughout Romans to build uh, bridges and to, to unite these relationships. The relationships that I think he's, he's primarily dealing with are going to be Jew and Gentile, and some of the problems that arise, are problems that arise among Jews and Gentiles when you try to take these two different cultures and unite them into one family. And so throughout Romans, he has been giving a lot of uh, theological explanation of how God has a plan for both of them, and they are both equally united as part of God's family. Uh, Then he has discussed some very practical ways in which they could go about fostering and bringing about that unity. But now when you get to chapter 14, I think this is where we're getting to kind of the, the most specific uh, directions of the book about, okay, so now here are your problems. These are the things you guys are fighting about, and this is what I want you to do about them. This is how I want you to go and solve these problems. So I think Romans has really been building up to this chapter where we come to find out, okay, these are some of the areas that are splitting these churches and that are dividing these Christians. Um, so when you read through it, you know, the the things that he mentions are n- to an extent, some of them still could divide us. Uh, he mentions uh, the f- foods we eat and, and drink, and he mentions the observing of certain days. And, and, you know, depending on what food or drink you're talking about, uh, yeah, we have those same types of divisions today. You know, that, that arguments about those things still arise. And even the days that you observe. Uh, you know, I, I know when it comes to religious holidays. When it comes to the what we call like the, the Christian calendar, uh, there's a lot of different thoughts about the, what Christians should do with those things. Should they completely avoid it? If it's you know, uh, should should they avoid all holidays that aren't spoken of in the Bible? Should Christians celebrate any Jewish holidays? I know I know of uh, some who who like to take seriously some of the ideas of Passover or, or Sabbath even. Uh, I, I was just saw something recently, uh, a friend of mine who who uh, has been practicing Sabbath. And, and so there are things like that, that as soon as you say it, someone else says, but wait a minute, I, that's, that's not what Christians do. That stuff has passed away. And, and you can end up having arguments over exactly how to treat certain days. What about Christmas? And what about uh, uh, Easter? What about Lent? You know, we have days that pop up that I bet, depending on how I preached about them, there would be a variety of topic, of, of opinions about what I just said. And so uh, the days we observe, the foods we eat, and the things that we drink, they're still a part of our conversation, just like they are here in Romans 14. But then I guarantee you we could come up with a list of a lot of other types of things that if I were to take a survey of all of the Christians who worship here at Maryville, Uh, And I were to ask you your thoughts on a bunch of different topics. I bet um, there are certain TV shows that some people would say Christians should not watch. And someone else here watches (laughs) us. I guarantee it. Uh, I bet when it comes to modesty, you could look at some articles of clothing. And some people would say, oh, no, that's immodest. And others would say, oh, that looks fine to me. Like, I wouldn't think any, anything is wrong with that. It, it, you know, and two people can look at the same article of clothing and have vastly different thoughts about it. That happens all the time. That happens in every church. That happens, uh, I mean, so many of these things are dependent on uh, your generation, uh, so many of these things are dependent upon uh, where you're from, uh, you know, if you, what, what city you were raised in. Sometimes if you're raised in a coastal city, you might have different views of modesty than someone who's raised uh, in the Midwest or something like that. Like, those types of things affect it. And even people with, with honest and pure hearts can have disagreements on certain types of clothes. Uh, what words are appropriate and inappropriate I um, even, even me and my wife, I remember when we first got married, there were words that in her family were off-limits that we said, and it wasn't too big of a deal, and there were words in my family that were off-limits that she said in her family. And I was like, you sent her. You know, like, but… but uh, like, when it comes to our vocabulary, when it comes to our dress, when it comes to, uh, when it comes to different things that the church does, you know, Sunday evening service. How Im- do you have to show up? Is it a sin to not show up? I know churches have had, you know, had debates about all of those things. Like, when it comes to Romans 14, I think there are a lot of topics that we could take two honest, faithful Christians who are trying their best. And when they look at that topic, they'll have different views on it. And sometimes uh, those are the types of things that uh, could split and cause divisions in churches. And and one of the reasons, one of the things that is difficult about this is if we're going to apply Romans 14, if we're going to understand and apply this, we have to approach it, as Paul does, with the mindset that the things that you are dividing over— are not absolutes of the kingdom of God. They are not things that will determine whether or not you are saved or whether or not you are lost. They are not sin or not sin. Um, However, the reason all of those issues I just mentioned, sometimes it's hard to apply Romans 14 to them because what, what tends to happen is the group that opposes them Thanks. No, they are absolutes of the kingdom of God. Uh, and, so, and so that's one of the areas where, like, if, we, if everyone agrees that, uh, that, you know, we shouldn't bind matters of opinion on another person and that this is a matter of opinion, then it solves all of our problems. So I think in order to understand Romans 14 and to apply it, you have to do two things. One, you have to recognize that your opinions do not determine truth and they do not determine who is and is not a Christian and they should not be used to divide the kingdom of heaven. But secondly, and this is a, a harder thing to do, we have to come to understand what is my opinion and what actually is the word of God. Um, because if if you think, no, it's not my opinion, it actually is a sin to say that word, then all of a sudden it becomes a lot harder to to apply Romans 14 to that situation. But as we read through it, these are things that Paul is going to make the point. He's going to say, I know you guys are fighting about these things. These things are matters of opinion. They just are. And he says, he, he's convinced, I mean, it, when you read through it, he says some interesting things about, uh, You know He's convinced that all things are clean, (laughs) but the way you view these things ends up uh, determining whether or not it is right or wrong. Uh, Now, I think if you were to say all things, Paul, and start asking him to clarify that, I bet he'll tell you there are things that he thinks, yes, are sinful. But when it comes to the topics of days and foods, I think he thinks all things are on the table, depending on uh, how you view those things. Uh, Then he'll also say, though, and this is also interesting. There can be something that I can do, and it's not a sin. And if you do the exact same thing, it is a sin, or vice versa. And you think, well, why is that? And Paul's going to say, it's not because of the thing itself. It's because of the way you view the thing as you do it. So, let's just take some of those examples I mentioned earlier. That article of clothing. If one person wears it thinking, I am dressing immodestly... Uh, but I'm going to do it anyway, then all of a sudden that article of clothing can be a sin for that person. And for the person who wears it and doesn't think anything about it, they're wearing the same thing, but it's not a sin for them. I think that's going to be true with the way he talks about certain days. If you feel like you cannot do it and you do it anyway, then it can become a sin. Which is why if someone doesn't feel right about it, you should not pressure that person into doing it. Because even if it's not a sin, you pressuring them into doing something that violates their own conscience makes it a sin. And so there's a lot of like weeds that grow in, in, uh, as we try to think and use wisdom. Okay, how do we apply judge not to real situations as they arise uh, in the church? And Uh, One thing that I would just encourage us to do for the health of the church, uh, to understand Romans 14, is always assume the best of the person that you have the disagreement with. Don't assume that they are, uh, that they're practicing malice or they don't actually love God or the only reason that they believe that is because they're hard-hearted and evil. Uh, Assume that they are actually trying to do what's right as well. Um, and be open to the idea that this is an opinion. And the more that you read with at least that idea open, I think the more likely we are able to find out whether it is or isn't uh, as you read through the Bible. If you <laughs> shut yourself off to the possibility, then you'll never think that it is. Uh, and so let's read Romans 14 together. Uh, that's what we're going to do in our lesson tonight. And, uh, and we're going to see that Paul's primary point here is there are so many things that can divide us, and he wants us to be able to cut through those and find reasons to accept each other rather than reject each other. In fact, uh, one, one thing that—our uh, it's, it's, chapters and verses, divisions in our Bible, uh, you know, those were added later. Those are not— part of, of like the original inspired text. Paul wasn't writing Romans and starting with a big one and then a small one right next to it and started writing verses and chapters. Uh, that was added later. And so sometimes we just divide things up by those. But better than that, there are a lot of time clues in the text that'll help you kind of know where it, he's how Paul is naturally dividing uh, this chapter up or this topic up. And I think we have one of those right here with the idea of accepting one another. If you look at chapter 14 and verse 1, he says, Now accept the one who is weak in the faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. It's like accept the person, accept him. The one who is, is weak in the faith. And now even that becomes something. Is like, well, which one of us is weak? You're calling me weak or you're calling him weak? Uh, and Paul will define that for us. Uh, the, one who, the one who has a harder time saying that it's their opinion. And the one who is more likely to judge another person. And the one who cannot do the thing is actually the one who's weaker in the faith, according to Paul. And that might be a little opposite of the way we would tend to think about it. We, we sometimes can, I don't know if we all do this, but I know I've seen it before, where the person who does the, the least of all of the questionable things uh, is the person we put up at the top. Wow, that's the mightiest Christian of all. And Paul is actually going to use the language of you know, the person who cannot eat and the person who can't observe the days, the person whose who's, uh, opinions or their, uh, their morals won't let that, they're actually the weaker one. The stronger one is the one who's able to do those things without it affecting their love of the Lord. So, like, the stronger one actually does more, and the weaker one is the one who does less. But notice, just to start the whole thing off, he says, accept the one who is weak. That means I want you to accept the person who is unable to eat what you can eat and unable perhaps to wear what you wear, perhaps the one who is unable to uh, observe the days that you observe, accept that person and don't do so for the purpose of judging every one of their opinions as ignorant, backwards, or foolish. Oh, this person hasn't studied their Bible. Oh, no, this person's just a fundamentalist conservative. They haven't been enlightened by grace or something like that. So often when people do, people... want to be careful how I say this, Uh, I do think there's a tendency for people who think that they have discovered grace to immediately turn against the people who they don't think have discovered grace to the level that they have, and condemn them as fundamentalist, overly conservative, rigid, judgmental, all of that stuff. And if that's your response to grace, to look at the people who don't have it, then you have not really discovered grace. Uh, but that happens so often. And, and it's more of a... of a, It's not so much grace. It's more of a, of a new position, uh, you know, an open-mindedness, perhaps, that they have discovered. But even that, it, like, immediately turns them into just as judgmental as they were before. They're just judgmental towards the different group. And that's never what we want to have happen. Um, and so, in chapter 14... Instead of judging the one who's weak in the faith, instead of mocking or ridiculing the one who's weak in the faith, you accept that person. If you skip over now to chapter 15 and verse 7, and this is where I was talking about kind of the book ends. Uh, You know, if you stop at chapter 14... You don't really get his conclusion. <laughs> chapter 15 is where he then ties this into the example of Jesus and then makes his, his conclusion to the conversation. And his conclusion is this in chapter 15, verse 7. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So accept the one who is weak in the faith is how he starts it. And then he builds all the way to telling both groups. So just as God has accepted us, you accept one another. And, and you do so without passing judgment, you do so without being overly harsh and critical. Let people have different opinions than you. That's okay. Like you will you can sleep fine tonight if someone else has a different opinion than you. It, it will not destroy the church, it will not destroy your soul. You can still go to heaven, and I bet they can too. People can have some there can be a variety of thoughts on different things. And so uh, Romans 14 is gonna it's gonna be walk through how we be a united church with one voice even with different opinions and different thoughts. So, let's go through it. Uh, chapter 14 and verse 2 is where he brings up the topic of eating. He says, One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Okay, so, uh, I don't know if we have any people who eat vegetables only. There are, there are people out there, and there might be some here. Um, I one of the difficulties with this text is knowing the exact reasoning for that. Um, I don't think it is, it is so much what, uh, you know, with modern, like, vegetarianism versus, you know, not only eating vegetables but eating meat also. Some of those deal with uh, questions of ethics about, like, uh, the proper treatment of animals. And some of those deal with, um, you know, questions about health and things like that. I'm assuming those are not the primary focus right here. I'm assuming it's one of two things, and, and I could be convinced either way. I don't have a strong opinion on it. It either is uh, a reference to some of the Jewish food regulations. Uh, you know, Jews have—they're uh, not going to eat pork. You know, there are things that would be considered unclean. And Paul is going to talk specifically about clean and unclean later on. And so it might be that there are Jews who want to hold to a particular diet, uh, and they're looking at others— who are not holding to that diet diet with judgment or contempt. Uh, Or it could be the same issue that was brought up at the church in Corinth, which is, look, if you're going to eat meat in an ancient city like Rome or Corinth, you have to go to the market to buy the meat. And do you know what has happened to that meat before it was put there in the market? It was... They're not going to waste a good sacrifice. Uh, If they're killing an animal, what tends to happen in a pagan society like that is that animal is offered up as a sacrifice to a god. And they slit its throat and they take the meat and they put it on the, the altar and they cook it. And then you eat that. And so the meat that you got... Just, unless it's like your own personal animal that you slaughtered yourself, if you're buying meat, it probably was sacrificed to an idol. Uh, it was probably a, a pagan offering and then you're bringing it home to eat it. And so that brings up some questions like, can a Christian do that? And in First Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul has to walk through that topic, um, 8, 9, and 10. And, and he gives some some very helpful advice on how to do that. Basically, he he will allow... For you to buy meat in the market and bring it home, don't ask any questions about it. <laughs> you know, don't, don't think too much about it. Um, if you go to someone's house and they're serving you meat, don't ask them any questions about it. But don't dare go to a temple and eat the meat there. Flee from that. He's, he's against eating meat at a pagan temple. At the house, you can eat it. If it's against your conscience, don't. If someone is serving it to you, don't ask questions about it. But if you're at someone's house and they bring it out and they say something like, oh, we're so thankful for this meal. Uh, We just sacrificed this to the God of our house and the God of this city, and we want you to be able to share in this meal and enjoy it with us, you should probably refuse that meal. Uh, because they've made it about their gods, and Christians can't do that. And so, and so Paul has to work through about, you can eat the meat. It's not objectively wrong, but if, it's, if people are intentionally attaching it to an idol, or if you're going to a temple, don't do it. So it might be that same type of issue, in which case that would make more sense with the vegetables only, because in a Jewish diet, you could eat either. Like you could, There are lots of meats you could eat, and Jews did eat meat, and they, they would celebrate and they would eat meats. And so it might have to do with clean and unclean regulations. It might have to do with whether or not the meat was sacrificed to an idol, maybe a combination. Maybe, maybe you have all kinds of things going on there that are causing these arguments about foods. But the way that Paul is, is starting off as he's talking about two different kinds of people, Uh, the person who eats it and the person who doesn't. In verse 3, he says the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. And so he starts off, He states very clearly that God is not condemning you for whether you eat or don't eat. So you don't condemn each other. God has accepted him. Uh, but notice the difference between if you don't eat, you shouldn't judge the one who does. And if you do eat, don't regard with contempt the person who doesn't. And again, I think that's the type of thing where one person is looking and judging the other one as sinful, and the other one is looking contemptuously at the, at the backwards uh, fundamentalists who can't figure out how to, how to have a good meal and have a good time, and, and they are elevating their own opinions as the superior one, as the one that, uh, that brings enlightenment, and they are condemning or uh, critiquing the other person. So, verse 4 is where Paul asks a question that I think we should all ask ourselves before we start judging somebody else. It's a really important question to think about. Who are you to judge the servant of another? So the person who's either eating or not eating, that's God's person. (laughs) That's the servant of Christ. Who are you who is not the master of that person to stand off to the side and to judge that person on Christ's behalf? Who are you to judge the servant of another? That's, that's quite an audacious thing to do, to elevate yourself to the status of being able to judge on Christ's behalf. Uh, Paul is saying, you need to recognize who is yours and who is not yours, and your brothers are not yours to judge. They're not your servants. Let Christ do that. So he says, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. And so he says, you know, again— he has been accepted. He is not your servant. He will stand before his own master, and he will either stand or fall, and his master is gracious and loving and is able to make him stand. So I love that language also. The Lord is able to make him stand. You know, I'm not able to make myself stand in the presence of the Lord as someone who's been righteous and, you know, like, who has made myself righteous in some way, but the Lord is able to make me stand. The Lord is able to cleanse me, even if I'm wrong in something, the Lord is able to make me stand when I am trying with purity of heart to, do the, to, to honor and to obey him. We are going to be wrong about some things, that we are going to have imperfections and sins in our lives, and that's why we rely on the grace of God throughout. So even with these types of opinions, uh, differences, recognize that the Lord is able to make them stand. And so don't judge the, the slave of another or the servant of another. You have your master, he has his master, and let him stand before his master. But also, think about this. That might mean that someone else can't judge you, but it means that God will. That's not less frightening. Uh, I, I think there's an extent to which I'd rather it be you who judged me, who can't really do anything to me, than, uh, than the God of heaven, uh, because he, he's true perfection and holiness. Now, yes, he is graceful and loving, and so we can have confidence before the throne of God, but at the same time, that's a judgment we have to take very seriously. And so, verse 5, He talks about another issue. We've talked about the eating of meats. Well, now he says, well, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, that's a a good, he says, that's your solution. The solution isn't to fight each other over it. The solution is be fully convinced in your own mind, even if it's not the same conviction that another person has be fully like study this thing out be honest with it do the best that you can and that's fine if your opinions are different on this but be fully convinced in your own mind Uh, verse five he who observes the day he observes it for the lord and he eats the one who eats he does it for the lord for he gives thanks to god and he who does not for the lord he does not and he gives thanks to god for not one of us lives to himself or dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and the living. And so that's that's a beautiful way of saying, if you really are honest, and you have studied this thing out, and you're fully convinced in your own mind, and you're making your decision based on what you think is right, then that means you're doing it for the Lord. And even if you find yourself doing different things at dinner time, or different things on Easter or Christmas or uh, different holidays, and even if you find yourself uh, you know, having differences of opinions on what you watch or what you wear or what you say, and some of these different types of things, be fully convinced and do it for the Lord. And if you're both doing that, then God is glorified. He says, think about, think about the, the topic of the eating of the meats. What do the people say who eat the meat? Well, before they eat it, they pray to God and they give thanks to him for the meal. They're thinking about God as they eat. And the person who abstains from eating, why are they abstaining? Well, it's because in their obedience to God, they think it's best that they don't eat that meat. And so they thank God and the other one thanks God and they're both doing it for God. So that's, that's ultimately what we're trying to do here, to live for God. To live for God, to die for God, and for all that we do to be about God. That's actually what Jesus did. He died and he rose again so that whether we live or whether we die, we are his. So let's make all of our decisions in this life and in death for God. So, verse 10, getting back to the the topic at hand. But you, why do you judge your brother? And you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? So remember, those are the same words he used in verse 3. Don't regard with contempt and don't judge. One person is condemning the other one, and the other is responding uh, with with, uh, contempt towards the the other one. And you have both of these attitudes that are growing. And he says, why do you judge your brother? And why do you regard your brother with contempt? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. I like how he uses the language of brother right there. It's like you're a family I don't know if you guys have ever been part of a family. I bet so. Uh, I bet you've noticed that you and your family members sometimes have differences of opinion on the way that you live or uh, or uh, so, you know so, some uh, political things or whatever the topic is Like when families sit around the table at Thanksgiving, it's like be careful what you bring up because you know, there could be a wide variety of opinions right there at the dinner table and yet you're still seated at the dinner table because you're family uh, and, and family has a way of, of you know, remaining family in spite of differences. And so as he uses the language here of your brother, don't, why are you judging your brother? Why are you regarding your brother with contempt? We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God. And there he's getting back to the idea of you're not actually the judge God is. And so instead of looking at your brother and judging him, look at yourself and recognize you're going to be judged. Uh, Maybe some introspection is more helpful than just looking at the failures of others. And so then he quotes from Isaiah 45. He says, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us must give an account of himself to God. And so focus on what you're going to say was you give an account for yourself instead of, uh, condemning your brother because you think he should be giving an account to you so verse 13 therefore let us not judge one another anymore so now we're getting the call to action so stop he's given us a number of reasons not to do it anymore so now he says so let's not judge one another anymore but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in your brother's way I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks something to be unclean, to him, it is unclean. That's, that's a remarkable thing for, uh, for a Jew to say, by the way, that nothing is unclean in itself. Uh, th- that, is, that is someone who has had a radical transformation of his thoughts and ideas by his knowledge of Jesus. And so that's why he says, I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean. Cause, and I don't think his mindset is, it's now okay to do unclean things. I think he believes that with the coming of the Messiah Jesus, all things have been made clean. And so now, yes, they all can be enjoyed, and they can be, uh, uh, you know, experienced and and, and enjoyed. Uh, but if you still go around regarding it as unclean, if you have not come to to fully grasp what it means to live in the age of the Messiah, that all things are come are clean now, you can still be a follower of Jesus, sure, but you shouldn't just ignore, in fact, you you should honor that feeling that you have. Like, you shouldn't ignore it and just eat anyway, even though you believe and feel that it's unclean to do so. Uh, That's where you would be disobeying uh, what your own conscience is telling you. And your conscience does matter, apparently. Uh, You know, our consciences aren't a great guide to truth, because our consciences can be wrong, but we shouldn't just ignore or reject or uh, disregard our conscience to do things that we feel are wrong. Like you should should look to more than just your conscience, but you shouldn't disregard what your conscience is telling you, especially with topics like this. Uh, He says in verse 15, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. That's a powerful statement right there. So here I think we have the idea of, you know, you have the disagreement and you are going to try to force or or, uh, persuade or uh, compel your brother to violate his own conscience to be more like you. Uh, You know, no, eat the meal. Do it anyway. Observe the day. And he doesn't feel right doing it. And you're pressuring him to do it anyway. He's saying, look, your food might be important to you. Great. But don't put it above your actual brother in Christ. That's not walking in love. If you genuinely love your brother as you ought, then you can allow him to have a different opinion than you, and you can be fine with that. You know, and Eat elsewhere or eat with someone else. But don't force on him your comforts. like that, That's not walking in love. As a matter of fact, if he does it and it becomes a sin, don't destroy the person that Jesus loved enough to die for so that you can have a meal like your food's not that important uh all of these opinion issues aren't important enough to cause division in the body of christ or to sever someone from christ or to compel someone to to do it anyway he says in verse 16 therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil it's like that might be a great wonderful thing for you to do you might thoroughly enjoy it that's fine but don't let it become a problem and become a source of evil because you're throwing it on others and trying to make them do it. Let them, let them have their views, and that's fine. And don't force your views on them. They shouldn't judge you, and you shouldn't regard them with contempt. You know, so if you invite someone to your dinner party and they don't come because you're serving food there uh, that they're uncomfortable with, well, how are we going to handle that? Are you going to say, how dare they judge me? And all of a sudden you view them with contempt. And what could be a good thing, having dinner, becomes a source of division and animosity and contempt and judgment and all of that. I said, no, don't do that. Uh, don't destroy, don't turn against your brother uh, for the sake of, of what could be a good thing. In fact, and this is a powerful verse in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not that. The kingdom of God is something different than that. But righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So instead of trying to like force this issue that is about eating and drinking and is causing issues, why don't you celebrate things that bring about righteousness, joy, and peace Why not celebrate things that bring joy in the Holy Spirit that you can celebrate with one another that you can enjoy as brothers in Christ and that doesn't bring up the the conflict and the judgment and the the contempt? Like there are so many things you can do with one another that aren't compelling uh, a person to violate their own conscience. So you know if. Here's a, a, a modern scenario you could think of. Uh, you have a bunch of kids getting together at someone's house. They're going to have a movie night and a slumber party, something like that. All right, so what movie are you going to watch? Well, say you want to watch the, uh, the Harry Potter movies. This one, I guess uh, those came out a you know, decade or so ago, maybe a little longer. But with those movies... If you ask Christians, there were a variety of opinions about uh, watching movies with witchcraft and uh, sorcery and magic and things like that. Uh, Some who loved them and they would watch them. They read the books. They ate it all up. They loved that stuff. Some, I know of Christian schools that wouldn't allow the Harry Potter books even in their libraries. Uh, And I know of, uh, of Christians who wouldn't want their kids to watch it. Okay. So you have a situation like that. Now you have families getting together. They find out that's the movie that you're going to be watching. What situation are those kids put in who are not allowed to watch the movie? Well, you could say... Just watch it anyway. It's not a big deal. Just, you know, you'll be fine. You're not going to become a witch or something because you watched the movie. You'll be fine. Do it anyway. Well, that would be compelling a child to disobey his parents, to violate his conscience. Like, that would be a sinful thing for the child to do. And so you say, okay, well, then you're not welcome here unless you get your views right. And uh, we're going to watch something else. And in that case, you're you're sending someone away. And that's kind of, they're going to view with contempt. And I bet that child's going to view you with contempt in that family will as well. And so, in some situations like that, why not choose something that's not controversial? Uh, You choose something that is, uh, that everyone can do, because you know what, there's other options out there. And don't turn the kingdom of God into this argument about this particular movie, or this particular book, or this particular meal. Uh, Joy, peace, and, and, or righteousness, joy, and felt Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit can still be attained even if you don't see the Harry Potter books the same way. Uh, and, and so don't turn, like, the kingdom into something where that becomes a marker of, like, I'm either going to sin and be with Christians or be excluded and not sin. Like, those are the types of situations that can arise, and I think that Romans 14 gives us some, some ways to walk through. You might not always get to watch the exact movie you want to watch in a situation like that, and that can be disappointing. But if you're going to walk in love, which is what Paul just said to do, once you start causing stumbling blocks for your brother, you're not walking in love anymore. And love is more important than your movies. Love is more important than your meal. Love is more important than what you wear. So walk in love, prioritize the kingdom, and you know what? Watch the movie a different time when, when, when it doesn't cause a conflict. Uh, that's, that's something you can do. Uh, so keep, uh, we keep reading... In verse 18, he says, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to men, or is acceptable to God and approved by men. All right, so in that way, God will approve and it will be uh, acceptable to the men that you're with also. That's going to be creating reconciliation and peace, uh, both vertically and horizontally. Uh, So, verse 19, so then, pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another and don't tear down the work of god for the sake of food all right so so pursue with one another the things that are going to bring about peace don't make everything about the argument uh, if you don't see eye to eye okay don't make everything about that now Find ways to have peace with one another and don't start tearing down another person because that's the work of God that you're tearing down. That person is a follower of Christ because of the work of God. So don't tear them down so that you can eat the food that you want to eat or watch the movie you want to watch. So verse 20, all things indeed are clean, but they are evil if the man who eats uh, gives offense. So like all of these things could be fine. But they can become evil once they are forced upon someone else and he stumbles because of them. Verse 21, so it's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So if you're, if you're having people over and you're having, and you know that it's going to be controversial, then these are the types of things that you don't do for the sake of your brother. Do them with a different group. Do them by yourself. Find a way where it's, you're not bringing about the controversy into the kingdom. Uh, pursue peace with that person, and you can, you can adjust your meal accordingly. So verse 22, the faith, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. So if it's between you and God, and you are, have faith in that, Great. Have it between you and God. And it's wonderful when you don't condemn yourself (laughs) over the the convictions that you have with God. If you're fully assured like he told them to be uh, when he said in verse 5, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. Then you can have confidence in what you do before God. But if you doubt, this is verse 23, this is if you're not fully convinced, the one who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is not eating from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. And so, if you, even if you see other people doing it, if you can't, for yourself, become fully convinced, then probably avoid it yourself. Don't force yourself to do something that violates your own faith or your own conscience. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 7. This is where he brings it together in the example of Christ. He says, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. You know, the person who's strong is the person who observes the days, eats the meats, drinks the wine, like, does all of that. And they, they can do that, and it doesn't cause them any problem. They're confident with themselves and God, and they, it's, not, it's not a major issue for them. But they shouldn't then just live their lives pleasing themselves by doing all of these things. Because they do have brothers, and they do have sisters, and they do have family in Christ, who they should be concerned about. And if you're going to walk in love, then you bear with those people as well. So, verse 2, each of us is instead, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. It's like, so think about what's best for your neighbor when you are living the Christian life together. Even Christ, who is the Lord of all, didn't come to this earth to have himself be pleased. He didn't come to this earth and, and do everything that, uh, that uh, he wanted to do. Uh, he actually not only did not receive all the pleasures and joys that he potentially could have, he received suffering and hatred and reproach for the sake of others. Uh, verse 3, Even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Christ received the reproaches that were deserved for other people, he took them upon himself so that they wouldn't receive him, receive them. So Christ suffered for other people. Surely I can find a different movie on a movie night, you know, like, like if Christ could actually go to the cross for the sake of others, then we can make decisions in the way that we treat one another, will pursue and bring about peace. So verse four, for whatever was written in earlier times, like that passage he just read where he looked uh, about uh, the example of, of accepting the reproach for someone else upon yourself, he says, whatever was written in those times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scripture, we might have hope. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. Now, saying being of the same mind does not just negate everything he said about it's okay to have differences of opinions. Uh, He somehow thinks they can be of the same mind even if they don't see these things the same way. Because their mindset, that which unites it, it's not necessarily their view of of modesty or movies or food or certain days. What unites them is the love that they have for Christ and that they demonstrate towards one another. It's like they're going to follow the example of Christ and in that they will be of the same mind. So that, verse 6, with one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't say Jews have to give up everything that made them Jews in order to be Christians, and Gentiles have to give up everything. You can still be a Gentile. You can still be a Jew. But I want you to be with one mind with one another when it comes to what actually matters in the kingdom, one mind with one another when it comes to love. I want you to have one accord and with one voice glorify the one God of heaven together. And you can do that even if you view food differently, even if you view some of these other things differently. So, verse 7, therefore accept one another, just as Christ has also accepted us to the glory of God. So, he gets you to that point and says, so, brothers, accept each other. And don't find every new little way to to be separate or to cause division, but find every way you can to accept one another, because there are things that matter more than our opinions. Um, Christ loved us enough to die for us, even though we were undeserving of it. In fact, that, that death on the cross becomes our model for how we treat other people. Uh, don't always seek your own, but seek what's best for your neighbor and walk in love. Well, the death of Christ— even though we didn't deserve it, provides for us opportunity for salvation, forgiveness, and eternal life, that we can become one family united with one another. And if we can help anyone here tonight, name Jesus Lord of your life, change your life into conformity with his will, and have your sins washed away in baptism. Please let that be known. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.